It is not comprehensive in an absolute sense, but in terms of one book, one letter, it is the most comprehensive and systematic presentation of the gospel and of Christian doctrine that we have in the scriptures. Paul, in the letter to the Romans, engages with the Old Testament throughout. I was having a conversation even before the service this morning with one of our members here who said, you know, this morning as I was doing things in my home, getting ready for the Lord's Day, I listened to Romans 1 through 8, just audio. And it's remarkable how often the Old Testament comes up, how often the Old Testament is cited. It's true. It's really valuable for us. Paul engages the Old Testament in diverse ways. He cites it. He references it. He alludes to it. At points, he will cite the Old Testament in large sections. At others, he peppers in Old Testament citations to drive his argumentation. And at still other points, Paul will interpret large sections of Old Testament narrative like he does with Abraham, for example. All of this is important for us because as we look to Romans, we will continue to learn more of how the apostles understood the Old Testament. They understood that all of Scripture is a cohesive whole. It's not just this random collection of books and writings slapped together and bound in one cover these days. No, it is God's revelation through various authors over 1,500 years that all tell of God's one plan of redemption accomplished through Christ. All of Scripture is a testimony of the Lord Jesus. Romans makes that plain. It would take a long time to quote all of the prominent theologians throughout the history of the church who have spilled ink on how significant this letter is or how impactful it was in their own lives and ministries. But for our purposes today, I'll give you two sort of bullet points that would matter for us. The reformers, a number of them, stated that they saw Romans as a God-given key to understanding the whole Bible. That's significant. And with more specificity, John Calvin wrote these words, quote, When anyone understands this epistle, he has a passage open to him to the understanding of the whole scripture, close quote. Significant. So with all of that, just to kind of tee it up and introduce the subject matter for us today, we're going to look now to Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Again, this is the first of two sermons that will serve as an introduction to the series. Before we go further, let's read God's word together. Beginning in Romans 1, 1. This is the word of God. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We thank God 
for his word. My plan today is this. I want us to look over the first six verses. We're going to save that verse seven for the end. I want us to walk through the first six verses together and effectively ask ourselves this question. What is Paul saying? What's he communicating? Let's look at the words on the page, make sure we understand even how he is starting this most significant letter. And then after that, we're going to go into much more depth on several of the verses in particular. Beginning in the second part of verse 1, going through the end of verse 4. We're going to spend quite a bit of time there before ending with verse 7. So with our first pass through verses 1 through 6, what does Paul say? Let's look at it together. Verse 1, Paul, a servant. That word literally is a slave of Christ, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Called to be an apostle, he says. Now the term apostle, it can be used in a general non-technical sense to describe a messenger or a representative of the gospel, but that's not what Paul means here. Here he is referring to the apostolic office, the office of apostle. To be an apostle in that sense is to be an eyewitness to the resurrection or to have had an encounter with the resurrected Christ. That's a piece. In addition, this office of apostle meant that you had been personally appointed by Christ to establish the church and to teach and or write with authority, having been given special revelation from God by the Spirit. So that's what Paul is saying about himself, his office, his ministry. I'm a slave of Christ. I've been called to be an apostle to do this. I've had an encounter with the resurrected Lord Jesus and he has commissioned me to this work. He goes on, I'm a servant of Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. What a wonderful phrase. The gospel, the good news of God. It's God's message. It's God's plan. For all the young folks in the room, hashtag God's plan, right? I mean, this is God's plan. He is the source. He is the author. Verse 2. It gets better. The gospel for which Paul was set apart, God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the Old Testament. You understand that? Many maybe have grown up with this false paradigm of the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is gospel. That is really bad theology. This gospel God promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament. Verse 3, the gospel, which was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Scriptures, is concerning God's Son, who descended from David according to the flesh. The gospel, as we have thought about before, we'll think about a lot of times through the book of Romans. The gospel is completely about Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. The gospel contains nothing in it whatsoever for us to do. We receive what Christ has done. The gospel is about Jesus. So the gospel is concerning God's son who descended from David according to the flesh and God's son who descended from David according to the flesh was declared to be the son of God in power by the Holy Spirit in the resurrection. So if there was any doubt up to that point, 
The resurrection was the validation, the affirmation, the confirmation that he is God the Son, descended from David, the Savior of the world. He is Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And he is our Lord. Amen? Amen. In verses 5 and 6, we see that through Jesus, the apostles received grace and their office. In order, notice this, to bring about the obedience of faith for Christ's sake among all the nations, including the saints in Rome who are called, effectually called by God to belong to Christ. In Romans 10 and verse 16, we're going to use, you see Paul, excuse me, use the language of obeying the gospel. Here in chapter 1 and again in verse 26 of chapter 16, we see Paul use the language of the obedience of faith. It's important that we understand what this means. What does it mean to obey the gospel? It means to trust Christ. To obey the gospel is to receive Christ. The obedience of faith, to put it in the language of our confession, is to accept, receive, and rest in Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace, is to obey the gospel. Now, notice this. We've thought about Ephesians 3.10 in the past where God has determined to display his manifold wisdom to the world through the church. He could have done that any way he chose and he does it through the church. That's big. But notice this. The obedience of faith, people trusting in Jesus, receiving the merits of Christ, resting in him alone for salvation is the way that the name of Christ is glorified among the nations. We proclaim the gospel to see people trust Christ to the praise of his name globally. That's what Paul is communicating in verses 5 and 6. So, we've surveyed what Paul said. Now we're going to go into greater depth. So I'm going to front load what I'm about to do. This is just me kind of breaking the fourth wall or whatever it is and just talking to you for a moment. What I'm about to do is not normal for me or for our preaching ministry here at CBC, but it is appropriate given the way that Paul starts his letter. We are going to go into great depth about the gospel of God concerning his son that was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. We are going to go into great depth to see that that is in fact true. You understand that that gospel the work of Christ that's always been the plan of God is the reason that Paul has been set apart to be an apostle in the first place. It is the reason Paul wrote the letter in the first place. And it is the reason that any of us are sitting here today. And so it is appropriate that we would begin here. So in other words, from Romans 1, 1 to 7, we're going to spend the rest of our time basically in the Old Testament and in the Gospels to understand the plan of God. Now, many of the words that will come from me over the next 30 minutes or so will be the words of Scripture, not my own words. So listen. 
Listen intently. I'll give you references. Don't try to turn. I will give you references to jot down if you would like to record them. We will even aim to email out all of the references this coming week so that you don't have to be stressed about that. Listen to the Word of God. For 16, 1700 years, beloved, people only heard the Word of God read to them in the assembly. Right? So listen to the Word of God and listen with this in view. Listen to all of this with Christ in your mind. Listen for how often the same language is used over and over and over again by different writers of the scriptures. And listen. As you think about your life, as you think about your life in particular in a world that's fallen, and think about it over the last month or year and the difficult things that you have encountered, that we have encountered, this is the only hope we have in life and death. Listen with that in mind, okay? And let our feet be placed even more firmly on the rock who is Jesus Christ, who has been promised and has been given before the foundation of the world for our sake. Verse 1b, the last part of Romans 1.1. Just put your eyes on it. Let's look at it. God promised the gospel beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh. So, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, let's consider that together. Moses, of course, wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The very first book of the scriptures, Genesis. In the third chapter, something tragic happens. Adam and Eve rebel against God. Worst day in the history of the world, right? And immediately upon that occurring, God made a promise. He promised that there would be a descendant of the woman who would come to conquer the serpent, the great enemy of God's people. And the rest of the scripture is in effect the unfolding of the accomplishment of that promise. Chapters later, we learn about another promise that God made to a man named Abraham. That the nations would be blessed through his offspring, singular, his offspring. We learn from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 and verse 8 that the gospel was preached to Abraham. Which is why Jesus would come to earth and say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. We learn toward the end of the book of Genesis that there would come an anointed ruler from the tribe of Judah who would establish a kingdom characterized by great blessing. Fast forward a number of years. The people of God have been greatly increased and multiplied. There are many of them, but they are living in bondage in the land of Egypt. The Lord raised up Moses, his prophet, through whom he would set his people free from bondage in Egypt. God sent a number of plagues upon the Egyptians in order to change Pharaoh's heart and mind to convince him to let the people of Israel go. And the tenth plague we know about, the tenth plague of ten, was that God would put to death the firstborn in all the land of Egypt in one night. 
But God instituted a meal. He instituted something called the Passover. Whereby God's people were spared from that wrath and spared from that judgment, spared from that justice by the blood of a spotless lamb. God came through the land of Egypt. The angel of the Lord came through the land of Egypt in a night and put to death all the firstborn except when the Lord would see the blood of the lamb on the lintel posts of a household. He saw the blood and would pass over that house. Then there's the exodus itself. God's people were saved from bondage and certain death by an act of deliverance that only the Lord could accomplish. In fact, it was so great, so terrifying that Moses had to say to the people, the Lord will do this. He will fight for you. All you need to do is be silent and see the salvation of the Lord our God. To this people, God gave his law then at a mountain called Sinai. In that law, Summarized in the Ten Commandments, God revealed to his people what he requires for righteousness. And through the teaching of his prophet Moses, he taught his people that if you were to do this, you will live forever. Leviticus 18.5. If you keep the entire thing, if you live according to every word that is written in the book of the law, it will go well for you. Deuteronomy 27. However, the people were sinful like you and me. They could not keep the law. And so God instituted, he provided something called the sacrificial system. What was that about? That was about atonement for sins. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And he instituted something called the priesthood so that God's people would have a mediator between them and God. They would have an intercessor between them and the Lord, a go-between. God was teaching his people all of these things. Then there was something called the Day of Atonement, in which there were two offerings made once a year. One was a sin offering, where an animal was killed for the sins of the people, atonement. There was a second animal on which the priest would lay his hands and in one sense impute, credit, count the sins of Israel to the animal. The animal was then sent out into the wilderness. Sins removed from the people of God. As far as the east is from the west, we read it earlier. Atonement, removal of sin. All of this in the law. Continuing on, Israel would be led into the promised land, which is a type of the land that God's people will have forever. They were led into the promised land not by Moses, who represents the law. They were led into the promised land by Joshua, Yeshua, the commander of the Lord's army. That is no coincidence. We fast forward a number of years, and a man named David shows up on the scene. We first meet him when he is young. God's people have a number of enemies around them. None greater perhaps than the Philistines at the time of David. The Philistine army had a great champion whose name was Goliath before whom no one could or would stand. 
And David, as a young shepherd boy who would one day be a king, a shepherd king, goes out before the army of God, representing the people of God, to face the great champion of the enemy. He faced him. He conquered him and cut off his head. And this man would become king in Israel. When he became king in Israel, God made a covenant with him. And now prepare yourselves to hear much of the Lord's word. 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 12 to 16. The Lord to David through the prophet Nathan. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This Davidic king, this king from the line of David, we learn would represent the people. If he did well, it would go well for the people. If he did poorly and sinned, the people would suffer. 1 Kings 9, 4 through 7. This is the Lord to Solomon, David's son. And as for you, if you will walk before me as David your father walked, with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I have commanded you, and keeping my statutes and my rules, then I will establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. But if you turn aside from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes that I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land that I have given them. And the house that I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. As goes the king, so goes the kingdom. As we move forward in the Old Testament, we learn even more about David's greater son, who is the righteous branch, who is also the servant of the Lord, the rod of Jesse, the stump of Jesse. All of these things are used, all these terms and phrases are used to describe him. Psalm 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 1 and 2, we learned even as a church a little over a year ago, blessed is the man, the Messiah. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8. Blessed is the man. And Psalm 2, 12. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 22. You read these words and you think they should be in the New Testament. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We've heard those words. From the pen of David, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast 
lots. Psalm 110. The Lord, says David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You became priest by virtue of an indestructible life, says the writer to Hebrews. Isaiah 7, 14. There the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Isaiah 11, 1 to 10, selected verses. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. David's father, Jesse, right? There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Micah chapter 5, verses 2 through 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Ezekiel 34, verses 11 to 24, selected verses. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. I will rescue my flock. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Reminder, when Ezekiel and Jeremiah write about David, David is dead. They're talking about David's greater son, the one to come. I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Ezekiel 37 22 to 27. And I will make them one nation in the land. And one king shall be over them all. 
They shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. My servant David shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever and David my servant will be their prince forever. I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. These are the promises upon which a life is built, beloved. Continuing on, the servant of the Lord. What does the scripture say? Isaiah 42, 1 to 7. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Verse 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. He says to the servant, I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Isaiah 53, selected verses. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Jeremiah 23, 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 33, 14 to 18, where the Lord says those exact words again that I just read and then adds this. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. No kidding. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings and to make sacrifices forever. Why? Because he lives forever. And he made a once and for all sacrifice. 
Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 9. Saints, as this washes over you, be encouraged in the Lord Jesus and in the plan of God. You may be familiar with this section of scripture. Zechariah 3, the prophet is being shown a vision of Joshua, the high priest of Israel, the high priest of God's people, standing before the angel of the Lord. Remember, angel of the Lord, second person of the Trinity, right? So standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan is there to accuse Joshua. The great accuser of the brethren he is. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And then what does the angel of the Lord say to Satan? He says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord rebukes the enemy and the accuser. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him, to Joshua, the angel of the Lord says, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. That's good news if we've ever heard it. Then the angel of the Lord goes on. The angel of the Lord is going to speak on behalf of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua... I will engrave its, its inscription, excuse me, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So he would on a cross outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger. He's talking about John the Baptist here. I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, says the Lord. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then 400 years of this silence. And then... Luke 1, 26 to 33. 400 years. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Heard that before. 
the angel to Joseph. Matthew 1, 20 and 21. Joseph, son of David. Son of David. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32. There's a devout man named Simeon who was living in Jerusalem. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The Spirit, we're told, was upon him, and the Spirit of God had revealed to Simeon that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Christ. Jesus was brought by his parents to the temple when he was eight days old to be circumcised. And this old, devout man named Simeon takes the baby Jesus into his arms and proclaims these words. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And 30 years later, John the Baptist, that covenant messenger, cried out one day, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And what did he do? This son of David according to the flesh, this promised one, what did he do? Matthew 3:15, he fulfilled all righteousness. Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. He, like Adam before him, was tempted by the evil one, the great serpent who is the devil. Adam had been tempted in a paradise with everything going for him and failed. Jesus was tempted in a wilderness. Everything stacked against him. He succeeded. In every way that Adam failed, Jesus has won the victory. We have gained more in Christ than we lost in Adam. Matthew 5, 17, he came, he said, not to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. Mark 10, 45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. John 3, 14 and 15, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, you remember that? The bronze serpent lifted up in the wilderness. When people were bitten by snakes, they would look to it and live so Jesus says, must the Son of Man be lifted up on the cross, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. John 6, 51 and surrounding. He said that he is the bread that came down from heaven in order that we might eat of it and have eternal life. And he said, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. John 10, 14 to 18, he said, I'm the good shepherd. That should ring some bells. Ezekiel 34, Ezekiel 37, I will be the shepherd of my people. I will go find them and I'll bring them into their own land and I will pasture them. I am the good shepherd, says Christ. I know my own and my own know me. They know my voice. They'll follow me and I lay down my life for them. No one is able to pluck them from my hands. And my Father, who is greater than all, who has given them to me, also has them in his hands. And no one can pluck them from the Father's hand. 1 Peter 2.24 He bore our sins in his body on the tree. 
Galatians 3.13. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For as it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Romans chapter 5. Through his obedience, the many are accounted righteous. Sounds like Isaiah 53. 2 Corinthians 5.21. He was made to be sin, though he knew no sin, in order that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul was set apart to be an apostle for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning God's Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh. I would say so. Romans 1.4, though. You want to put your eyes back there. Briefly, this will be much more brief, just to comfort anyone in the room. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, right? By the Holy Spirit. He's declared to be both Lord and Christ by his resurrection from the dead. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 22. This is Peter's Pentecost sermon. The Holy Spirit has just fallen. Christ has ascended. The Spirit has come. The church is being founded. Peter gets up to speak. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's Psalm 16. Then Peter expounds on that. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David who wrote Psalm 16 that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make a footstool, or excuse me, make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Acts chapter 13, verses 26 and following. This is the Apostle Paul. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Those are remarkable words. You've seen it yourself today. The words of the prophets spoke of this. 
And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. That's Isaiah 55. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. Psalm 16. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That means he died and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. There's the sign of Jonah. Matthew 12, 40. Jesus says, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As we confess in the Apostles' Creed, Jesus descended to hell to do what? To conquer. To conquer the strong man and bind him. To bind Satan and plunder his goods, Mark chapter 3. To lead out with him a host of captives, Ephesians 4. And to disarm the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them, Colossians 2, 15. Romans 4, 25. Jesus was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You see, he lived a perfect life. We sang about it earlier. He kept his father's every word. The law he followed perfectly. So all God's pleasure he secured, all this and more, he earned for me. His righteousness that he earned is given to me and you by faith. He then went to the cross to die. He was obedient to the point of death, not dying for his own sins, but dying for the sins of his people to make atonement and satisfaction for them. And he did that. On the cross he said, it's finished. Redemption over. But then he was put in the ground. Three days later, he was raised, triumphant, victorious. It was the great stamp of vindication and validation on everything that he had done. It was sufficient. It was enough. He had, in fact, triumphed over sin and the grave and the enemy and hell. And because Christ was raised, we too will be raised. Because his life was perfect, it's counted to us. His death is satisfactory, it's counted to us. Because he was raised, we know that like we bore the image of the man of dust, we will bear the image of the man of heaven, and we will live with God forever. Because of Christ. He has secured all of that for everyone who trusts in him. And we receive it by faith. We receive it by obeying the gospel. Romans 1.7 To all those in Rome who are loved by God 
and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. To all the saints at Covenant Baptist Church, the Lord loves you. He loves you. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. He loves us. Saints at Covenant Baptist Church, you have been called by God to be saints. You've been made alive together with Christ. You didn't do it. How did you become a Christian in the first place? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, following the course of this fallen world, enslaved to the evil one and to your own cravings and passions and desires. You were without hope and without God in the world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, he's made us alive together in Christ. Chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Why? Don't know. Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Don't know. Beloved God, in his grace and mercy, has dug out your ears. He has knocked scales off your eyes. He has given you a heart of flesh to replace a heart of stone. And so you have trusted God's son. To all the saints at Covenant Baptist Church, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is why Paul was set apart to be an apostle. This is why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans. I look forward to our time in this book, should the Lord give it to us, as we consider Christ who is our only righteousness. Let's pray.